At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 90. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. The typical scenario that we have is toddler transitions, um, changes their diet, they turn a year old, they're introduced to nuggets and milk, and the next thing you know, they have a hard stool. And then the stool was painful. Uh, the toddler who's smart says, not doing that again. And the next thing you know, they have the little dance where they are holding their legs tight and they don't want to go. And they are just a miserable little souls and, or some of them will grunt. Some of them will dance. Happy, happy Sunday, veggie lovers. Welcome back to Veggie Doctor Radio. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have a special treat for you. I have a plant-based pediatric gastroenterologist who is a wealth of information. I had been looking for a plant-based pediatric specific gastroenterologist for a while. And one of my bestest friends who recently moved to Arkansas, Dr. Jennifer DePalma Dersch, she met Dr. Marielle Von Lanthan and introduced us. And oh my goodness, this lady is a wealth of information. She is so smart. She has so many amazing things to share with us that this episode is a little long. And we didn't even cover half of the questions I was going to ask her. So I anticipate that she will be a repeat guest and we will have more focused episodes in the future where I can really pick her brain about things. She's so passionate and I just loved everything she had to say. But before I talk more about Dr. V, just a reminder, if you're not already on my newsletter, you can sign up, there's two ways. You can text the word fiber, F-I-B-E-R, to 66866 on your phone, fiber, to 66866, or you can go to my website, dryami.com forward slash sign up, S-I-G-N-U-P. And if you haven't already, 
If you'd like to pick up a copy of my book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, it would make me so happy. This book applies to so many different people, whether you have children, nieces or nephews, or you have grandchildren that you help feed, or you think that someday you may have children, but not yet, it can help everybody. So I really recommend it. I've been getting great reviews already. If you have already read my book, if you could please take a moment to write me a review on Amazon, I would appreciate that so much. In addition, for all you very loyal podcast subscribers, could you please take a moment to drop me a rating and a review on iTunes? I would really love it. And before I talk more about Dr. V, just want to remind you that the information on this podcast is for educational purposes only. So it's not meant to replace having a doctor of your own or for your child. So if you have concern about your child's health, please consult a medical professional. So Dr. Marielle Von Lanthan, she is a board certified pediatric gastroenterologist practicing in Little Rock, Arkansas. So she was born in Illinois, but she actually grew up in Belgium. So uh, it's really cool hearing from her, hearing from her perspective. She's got great training in her background, but in addition to being a board certified pediatric gastroenterologist, she also has taken the plant-based nutrition certification through eCornell. So she has not just her private practice in pediatric gastroenterology, but she also has a business called Healthy Nugget, which I think is the cutest name ever, where she does cooking classes, gives lectures, does private coaching, helps people learn how to cook plant-based foods. And I just really enjoyed our conversation. There's so much that we covered her amazing health journey and how it has transformed her physically, her running, her athleticism, the changes that she's seen in her health and how she started to apply this to her patients. Like the dramatic difference of what her GI practice was before and then after she learned about plant-based nutrition and we also talk about constipation, we talk about inflammatory bowel disease, we talk about milk. I know you guys love to hear about milk and whether she thinks children should drink it or not. So it's a wonderful conversation. I hope that you enjoy it. And like I said, lots and lots of information. So this is one that you may need to take notes on, pause, rewind, listen to it again. Lots of great info for parents out there. If you have children struggling with constipation or inflammatory bowel disease, this is gonna be a great episode for you. But even if you don't, hearing her story and how she applies that to her practice, I think is very interesting for everybody. So again, thank you so much for being here week after week after week. I appreciate you so much. We're hoping to just continue to make this podcast better and better and better. And if you are a subscriber to the newsletter, thank you for hanging in there with me. I plan to make those newsletters better and better and add more value for you 
so that it's something that you look forward to getting every week. All right, well, let's launch in to this interesting conversation with Dr. V. Dr. V, I'm so excited to have you on Veggie Doctor Radio. We've been planning this for a while, and I know that this episode is going to be fantastic. So thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Dr. Yami, and I'm so excited to be here with you guys as well. Well, I found out about you through one of my bestest friends from residency. She met you because she moved down to Arkansas, and she was like, Yami, you just can't believe it. I met this plant-based pediatric GI. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have been looking for a plant-based pediatric GI doctor forever. So I had her connect us and I knew from the beginning that this was going to be awesome. I'd like to know from you about your plant-based journey. Tell me how you discovered plant-based nutrition and how it's impacted you in your life. Well, what you have to know is uh, years ago, I was a very unhealthy, uh, overworked pediatric gastroenterologist. I'm still overworked, but much healthier. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but I was approaching 300 pounds. I was getting, um, you know, the beginnings of diabetes, high blood pressure, et cetera. And I went about my journey initially the traditional American way, which was basically reduce portions, go to Weight Watchers and try to exercise. And then uh, a friend of mine kept bugging me to watch Forks Over Knives, and you know, eventually she put the video in my hand. She said, "You've got to watch this," and and then I watched it, and I overnight switched to plant-based because I felt that the energy, the 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 evidence in presented was so compelling that I could not possibly do anything else. Now, I, I will have to say, like most most people, I will have moments where I lapsed, and I've regretted it every single time, and. The lapses are less frequent, and the um, the cleanliness of my diet is much, much better than it was at the beginning. Um, it was a little bit uh, daunting initially because all your go-tos, particularly when you're a very, very busy person, the very quick things you can do, put food in your mouth, they're gone. And now you have to, to come up with new go-tos. And so it was, it was interesting uh, at the beginning of the Needless to say. But the second thing was midlife crisis because I was trained as a physician to tell people to drink milk, eat their animal proteins, although eat a lot of vegetables too, but still a balanced diet was the whole thing that we were taught in pediatrics and in gastroenterology. And I realized that basically I had been telling my patients something that was not supported by evidence and by science and I didn't know it and I felt very upset with myself because I thought I did a good amount of research and I was on top of things and I missed this entire body of evidence and therefore um, for a little bit I contemplated quitting medicine because I felt so bad to have given my patients bad information for many years at this point I was almost 20 years into my career but very quickly, I came to my senses. It's not very practical to quit your job when you have kids in college. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but I thought I, I can change. And I did uh, approach all of my patients at that point and apologize to them and explain to them that there was some new information and I had to change drastically what I had been teaching. 
And so there we begin uh, at home and at work. Wow. Wow. Amazing. I love that so much because I think a lot of us physicians have been through that. Mm-hmm. As pediatricians, we it's drilled into our training from the beginning. Milk, milk, and more milk. Mm-hmm. You have to have milk. It's essential. And so I'm the same. I was in the same boat. And yeah. I feel like I kind of laugh at it now because it's, it's one of those things that you feel so bad about it. And you feel yeah. like, oh man, I could have harmed people with that advice, you know? And, and, and there was times when I knew that giving milk to kids was harming them. I was doing the purple cow thing, you know, wherever you you tell the kid to drink milk it makes them constipated and then you just tell them to just put prune juice in it so that that way they can have the milk and still poop you know so (laughs) (laughs) i was doing that that was you know that they could still keep drinking milk so but i feel like you you get to a point where you know better and so then you do better and i love your what you did and tell your your patients hey you know i found this new evidence and this is this is what we're going to do now and i'm sorry that i was practicing this way but now it's going to be in a different way i love that tell me more about your personal changes what kind of improvements or changes did you see in your body and your life after you made the transition so um previous to my change to plant-based um i had a lot of problems um, plantar fasciitis, um, reflux. I had sleep apnea or this disordered sleep due to obstruction. I had, um, I herniated in 19, I think 19, no, 2004. I herniated a disc in my back and, and, you know, I fortunately rehabbed it without surgery. I refused a surgery um, but my physical therapist warned me that I would always have to be very careful with my back. And, and indeed, if I spent too much time in a car and things like that, I would notice that I would start getting, uh, you know, I'd have to do my exercise religiously and so on. Um, so when I went plant-based, the, the first thing that I noticed was plantar fasciitis gone, mm. reflux gone. And, um, and also I noticed over time, my back issues were much less tweaky. Um, my body postmenopausal is not particularly inclined to lose a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And because of my schedule, I tend to eat, gravitate towards starches as opposed to uh, lower calories. So the weight loss has, was there and I lost a bunch of weight, but not as much as some people say, because um, part of it, in residency, you learn to inhale food, and I can probably overeat even potatoes, you know. Um, so there's that's a part of the journey that had not quite been accomplished yet. But I was totally amazed, and then um, found out some evidence from one of my very good friends, who's a physical therapist, and she, Ellen Kovkaskis, and she said she found research papers that showed that the degenerative disc disease had to do with, it's a vascular disease. Mm -hmm. And so basically when your little arteries get clogged up, your disc degenerate and they begin to deteriorate and you herniate in addition to my bad posture, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are actually papers that show that the disc will recover. Mm -hmm. And I was just totally, fascinated by that and that was that has been my experience uh, at this particular point 
I can drive across the country in a Honda and not have the least amount of backache. Wow. It's unbelievable. It was, it, it was a life, totally life-changing experience for me because I don't wish to anybody to have to go through a, a herniated disc pain. <laughs> it's worse than labor. Uh, and so, um, so that was, these were some of the things. The other thing that kind of came upon, and that kind of came on afterwards, I always had some itchy skin, and then I developed uh, some lesions consistent with psoriasis. And uh, my dermatologist was, you know, petrified that I would have joint issues. My knee pain and things like that went away as well uh, with plant-based. And then um, if I'm very, very clean, eating, make sure I have a lot of greens and absolutely no added fat. My psoriasis is in tip-top shape. If I go to the restaurant a couple of times, a little extra oil, it, the, the fat will and the sugar will flare me right up. So I'm, I'm having a second incentive. Actually, I always tell folks that they feel sorry for me. The little kids come to clinic and go, you have an owie, what's wrong? <laughs> and I tell them the story and I said, you know, um, I'm so fortunate to have an autoimmune disease that I can see. Mm-hmm. because my skin doesn't lie. And if I try to rationalize that I'm eating well, even though I'm, you know, kind of sidestepping a little bit, my skin's going to let me know right away. And so that's a wonderful thing because I don't want to take, you know, biologicals and things like that for my own, you know, for autoimmune disorder. I see the side effects of those things and, you know, and as a doctor, I'm a terrible medicine taker. <laughs> oh, I, I know how that goes. <laughs> I'm definitely, I, I plead non-compliance. <laughs> oh, yes. I'm in the same boat. But yeah. wow, the, like you said, that those are can be some very life-changing things. Pain, for sure, can be mm-hmm. very motivating for a lot of people. And you're right. I have seen those studies, too, with the back pain and how mm-hmm. really it, for some people with chronic back pain, it is a symptom of coronary artery disease Absolutely. and that it can get better with uh, changes in diet and lifestyle that decrease the atherosclerosis in those vessels. But I think most people don't know that. Most people don't know that there might be that association. They think of back pain more as like an injury or a physical thing, mm-hmm. which can definitely happen from that, you know, yeah. or it can stem from that. But um, very, very fascinating. And also, I want to comment on the oils, because I think that whenever we talk about plant-based nutrition and I am a food for life instructor, so I teach the low fat, trying to keep the oils low. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's going to be sensitive to them, but for some people, oils can be inflammatory. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that you can have symptoms, you know, right away after you eat them, or it may take a couple of days or a week or so, but uh, definitely something to keep in mind for people out there that can't figure it out, they're eating plant-based, but they may be still eating oils or, or lots of added fats. Some of those things can be inflammatory for some conditions, but I'm so glad that you were able to discover what helps you and you can be empowered to take control and make changes. So that's, that's pretty fascinating. Now the super benefit also is, so as part of my health journey and to prove to myself I was still alive in the days prior to plan base, I decided out of the blue that I simply do a marathon. And so, uh, <laughs> so I proceeded to train and uh, my very first half marathon was a complete, I mean, I never intended to run it, but you know, the distance is the distance. So running, walking, I'm still getting the same metal and the same uh, distance. 
anyway, the first one was a disaster in terms of preparation and everything. The second, the, the second one was the, the year I hurt my back. So I basically wobbled around the marathon, the half marathon route with a partially paralyzed leg. And, and uh, but you know, it helped recover. Um, and then the, the year after that is when I did my first marathon. Now, as you know, if you run, you're pretty sore after doing 26 miles. And, um, and so um, fast forward a few years, go plan-based. And uh, the first thing that I noticed is uh, I, I haven't done any more marathons just due to lack of time for training. But I've, ever since that, that beginning, you know, that, that time, every year I make it a point to do the Little Rock Half Marathon. And I, I've done it religiously pretty much every single year. So I can have a medal for whatever exercise I've done that year. I <laughs> just need a medal. <laughs> so, and the medal in Little Rock, for those who are listening, is the biggest one in the world. So, yeah, so if you, you, you can barely carry it. Now it's like a, it's a platter uh, size medal for the marathon. The half marathon is bigger than most marathon medals. So it's very rewarding. Uh, what I've noticed then is with less training, I could go out and walk 13 miles tomorrow and not be sore at all. And that was just like, you know, in the in in the running world, it's 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 basically a given that you're going to be sore and stiff after the race and in, in the next day. And in my case, and at times for three or four days following it, and that went away completely. And I was just like, oh my, this is cool. One year I had dropped enough weight that I actually ran half the thing, and I was just I felt like running, and I ran. And and I'm you know I was 58 years old. Wow. And I never ran before. And I'm like, this is the, the sweetest thing in the world. So I can't wait, get, wait to get back to that weight again so yeah. I can run again because it's such a wonderful thing. Yeah. And that's very um, important for people that are into sports and athletes, because especially mm -hmm. if you're a competitive athlete, you're training a lot, a lot, a lot. So you are creating some damage to your body just from the amount of training that you're doing. So being able to be on a diet that supports quicker recovery right. and less inflammation can be a game changer through mm -hmm. that in because of the movie, it the is. game changers <laughs> uh, for a lot of people. So that's great. All right. Well, let's launch into the GI world because I'm excited to get to some of those topics. Topic. Mm -hmm. Is diet important for gastrointestinal health, especially of children? Well, let me think for a second. <laughs> I'd say yes. <laughs> Resoundingly yes. Absolutely. From the day you're born and the minute you swallow that first secretion from your mother's vagina until the day you die what you put in your mouth is going to be significantly impacting not only your health of your GI tract, but your entire health and your mood and your, you know, your depression versus non-depression, et cetera. Uh, all thanks to our lovely little companions of trillions of bacterial microbiome and, and whatever else. So yeah, no doubt. So tell us what you've observed, especially because before you were plant-based, you practice the standard way that most pediatricians and pediatric gastroenterologists mm -hmm. practice preaching animal <coughs> proteins and milk and things like that mm -hmm. compared to now. What observations have you made whenever you see different diets in children and specific symptoms? Can you make some generalizations about that? Um... 
Yes, I mean, so I've been in jab practice now for almost, well, 30 plus years now. Uh, well, even more than that, I think. I can't, I can't even count anymore. Um, the, as a diet of children has deteriorated and it has, it is, it is absolutely scary to see the, the, the eating habits of the people, at least in my patient population that I serve, but I, I cannot imagine that it's much different in many other communities. Um, it is very rare. I mean, I've seen kids come to my clinic that have been on reflux, strong reflux medications, proton pump inhibitors, which are the stronger ones, um, for years uh, because of bellyache reflux, uh, et cetera. I see more asthma, uh, uh, which people blame on reflux. So they're on medication for reflux for their asthma. Sinus problem, which people blame reflux. Recurrent ear infection, which people blame on reflux. Uh, you know, anytime you don't know where something's coming from, you blame it on reflux. Uh, not you personally, Dr. Yami, but, <laughs> but a lot of my colleagues. And so, uh, so I've seen a lot of that. And then constipation, of course, is rampant. And uh, also, um, when I, in the days when I started, we had uh, some concept that inflammatory bowel disease was regional. So we, we saw certain conditions in the south, and then in the north, you had a lot of inflammatory bowel disease. And that is completely, the map is now completely evened out. We see uh, an increasing number of inflammatory bowel disease everywhere in the United States and not just in the North or in less in the South. So that's a real scary thing too. And also younger children developing inflammatory bowel disease than we've seen before. And so, you know, all of these things, whether it's quote unquote simple constipation makes people's lives totally miserable. And, um, um, and, fa and the family miserable. I, I mean, everybody's miserable when the kid can't go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And so, um, it, it, so yeah. The, the, and the other thing that I've noticed as I'm talking to my patients is I'm seeing more and more things that are that used to you would see in adults. For example, uh, quote unquote adult onset or type two diabetes, uh, insulin resistance, PCOS, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, endometriosis. I see a lot of kids who have belly aches, um, you know, um, and they also, then I also ask about headaches. Uh, almost every one of my patients has daily headaches and sometimes crippling migraines. And then um, the other thing that I noticed is at a younger and younger age, uh, the kids are having lower back pain and mm -hmm. including pain that is consistent with sciatica, meaning the pain goes down their leg, which tells me for sure that they're starting to have a pinched nerve. So, and that's coming from degeneration of their disc. Occasionally I'll get an MRI and, and document that their discs are already starting to uh, look like those of a 30 or 40 year old in the past. So now basically we have, what we've seen is basically the, the type of conditions and things we were seeing in adults yeah, more you know more older people are now sliding down to affecting kids as as young as seven eight years old Even wow apnea and things like that what and a burden what a burden awful. of disease yeah. and conditions and these poor kids mm -hmm. because it doesn't feel good to live like that mm -mm. to have constant abdominal pain lower back pain i mean endometriosis it's one of those things you just don't expect miserable. to see in, in younger children. So um, 
that that's really heartbreaking to hear that. So what is it about the standard American diet and especially how our diet's evolving in the United States? What is the problem with it? What are the components of the diet that can be leading to this increased burden of disease? So if we take the good old mom and pop diet, say raised on a farm, eating really good stuff out of the garden and the cows, you know, did you, you know, did you know where they're coming from and they haven't been in the factory and all that, even that is, you know, associated with disease. We know that, you know, and after the war we had autopsies on soldiers that were young and healthy, quote unquote, and they already had coronary disease. And we know from population studies of communities that have allowed uh, for autopsies of people killed in accidental death to, that uh, we know that. So if you, if you think standard American diet, meat, potatoes, vegetables from the garden, that's already promoting disease, okay? But now, what, you, what, what has happened now is you don't even have the meat and potato and the food out of the garden. You have processed foods. And so um, there is a breakdown in families that are not cooking. Everybody's in a hurry. The, I think for kids to be in sports is wonderful, but the problem is doing so many sports that they're out and about every day, every night. The number of activities is so frequent that they survive on, on um, cod dogs and fast food that they pick up on the way to the game. Um, when they're home, and this is, I also ask my patients, you know, a, a detailed diet history. What do you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? And I, I ask one question is how many meals in the evening are eaten at home? So they'll, most, the majority of my families will say somewhere around three to four meals a week are eaten at home versus out, which is not very many. But then I ask the next question, and what do you cook from scratch? Or is eating at home mean that you buy food that's prepared, you know, say frozen, and you heat it up? And an astonishing number of people will say that they get prepared food and heat it up, and they don't know how to begin to cook anything. Um, and then the problem, because of all these changes, the kids don't want to eat. So you give them the vegetables, they don't want to eat it, et cetera, et cetera. And so why bother fixing it? And so the next thing you know, they're surviving on processed food. So the diet's going to harm us in two ways. The composition of the diet, the excess fat, the animal protein, the dairy products, assuming they're all pure, not, not associated definitely with all the conditions such as cancer, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera. But then you don't even, now you don't even have some of the good plant foods to offset some of the bad effects. So you have a, a, an astonishingly high increase in foods that are producing incredibly damaging substances for the body that are selecting a microbiome that is extremely harmful, that is then enhancing the bad effects of the food. And then none of the foods that are bringing in the antioxidants and the protective substances that help reverse the effects of the bad stuff. So what I explained to parents is we do have a double for whammy. <laughs> But we have a double problem of, of, of an extremely high intake of, of, of toxic substances and an extremely low intake of um, substances that are protective. And so that is a very lethal combination. 
Oh, I'm scared. Sounds bad. And just for the listeners to know, what Dr. V is talking about when it comes to processed foods is very true. The latest stats that I saw is that in our current diet in the United States, 64% of our calories are coming from ultra processed foods, 64%. So the majority of the calories that we're consuming in this country are coming from foods that can only be made in a factory. That's the definition of ultra processed. Ultra processed means you cannot make it in your home. So it yeah. comes from a, a factory somewhere. So what I, I talk about a whole food being apple, minimally processed, you take that apple, put it in a Vitamix, it's a applesauce. Moderately processed, you make apple juice out of it. Ultra processed would be Apple Jacks, Apple Jack cereal. <laughs> so that's the, the distinction. So definitely want to stick with more of the whole foods and the minimally processed foods and keep the ultra processed and the moderately processed lower in our diet. So you brought up the gut microbiome, which is a hot topic these days, and we're learning so much about it. And you alluded to some things that a lot of people don't know and how much it can affect us. So can you talk a little bit more about the gut microbiome? What is it and why is it important to human health? So the gut microbiome is a uh, population of bacteria, so probably numbered in the billions and trillions, that are living in our body, in our GI tract. And they, they're intermingled with our stools, and they are essential in helping uh, digest the non-soluble fiber that we consume. And in digesting those fibers, then they're producing compounds that are very helpful in settling down inflammation in the colon or in, in the bowel in general. And also they are essentially anti-inflammatory and, and substances that are particularly protective to the heart and to all parts of your body. But more so than that, so they're, they're essential to the digestion of the food. You, you cannot eat food and not depend on the bacteria to provide you with some substances from their digestive process. So they're, they're symbiotic, meaning that they work together with us and they feed off what we eat and the stuff that we can't digest ourselves. But in the process of doing that, they're, they're producing things that are either helpful or harmful to us. Okay. So I found, you know, um, I've been asked to do some talks on microbiome and I got so lost because there's so much. And, and I'm kind of like, you know, I need to write a book on the microbiome in order to feel like I can speak intelligently. But one uh, research study that was done some years ago that I think was very important shows the importance of microbiome in babies was a study that was done by an Italian group where they compared an Italian community and a community, I believe it was in Africa, where this community was completely severed from the modern world. So they were still living in, or, in original primitive conditions. And what they did is they, they had babies who were exclusively breastfed, they were vaginally born and exclusively breastfed uh, in both communities. And amazingly enough, during the time, the first six months that they were exclusively breastfed, the microbiome, the, the gut bacteria footprint 
of both communities across the world were identical. Wow. Okay, which means that at the very beginning of life, breastfeeding is essential. When you have something like this across the board, across the world, it is so even because people thought, well, the women that are in the bush are going to have different vaginal uh, microbes and their stools have different microbes. When the baby comes out of the birth canal, it takes a little swift of vaginal uh, secretions and poop. Um, I know it sounds gross, but that's how the baby is inoculated and how the microbiome begins. But breast milk is just such an amazing, I mean, I love to say I'm the breast milk representative. Uh, when formula companies try to sell me their stuff, and there's nothing that's ever going to come close to maternal milk. And I am happy to promote it because the substances in breast milk, no matter what the baby was inoculated with through the mother, is always going to get back to this very stable microbiome, which is probably a very essential thing in setting, setting up our immune system and, and our gut health and so on. The minute you give the baby something else, just one ounce of formula or start solid foods or anything else, the microbiome changes immediately. And we can tell that because the stool smells different. Instead of having that nice sweet smell of yogurt, they start stinking up a little bit. And so immediately you'll see some differences. And once in that particular study, then they followed the babies and once they were fed solid foods at, at, at age of weaning, the microbiome started diverging to resemble the microbiomes of the communities in which they lived. And so, and so super, super interesting. Um, but I think it's super important for your listeners to know that it is not, um, when people say breast is best and formal is good too, it's not true. And there are some consequences to this very large experiment of feeding babies something else in mother's milk that now we, I think we're starting to see and maybe some of the autoimmune disorders and things. Now, autoimmune disorders in my world, Crohn's, there's a big, uh, there are a lot of hypotheses that the microbiome has something to do with it. Why is that? Well, if we look at population studies, it depends on which part of the world you are, if you're going to get a high incidence of Crohn's or, or not. For example, if you go to countries such as China, eating a, a, Chinese, a standard Chinese diet, or Africa, or South America, high fiber, no processed foods, not a whole lot of added fat, they don't get inflammatory bowel disease. Western Europe, United States, we get it all the time. We say, oh, it's genetic, right? Because they're all different. Well, not true. Because you take populations from these countries. You move them into our country. And if they are eating the food that we eat, the incidence of inflammatory bowel disease in the transplanted population is practically the same as in the country that they're in. Mm the genes don't change that quickly. And most of the time the parents will continue to eat as they did back home and the kids will eat differently. They'll eat mm -hmm. like, like the, the population in which they have been transplanted. And they'll say, well, because they intermarried, but most geneticists will tell you that just one marriage is not enough to change the genes so much to see that degree. Mm -hmm. So there is, there's something about, you know, eating a lot of fiber and not only eating processed foods that really matters. 
studies were done in the um, in the pediatric population that looked at what are the risk factors for Crohn's and colitis. And what they found was less fiber increases your risk dramatically. Um, processed foods, and especially um, fatty processed foods, you know, potato chips and cupcakes, cookies, and things like that. Processed meats, you know, back to the link with cancer, you know, the bacon, the hot dogs and sausages and things like that. These are all risk factors. And so when you take kids who were recently diagnosed and you, you try to, you know, examine what their diet had been up to the point of diagnosis, and these are the differences between the groups of kids who got sick versus the groups of kids who remain healthy and were matched for, you know, all other factors. So that's, you know, incredibly important. Wow, that's that's simply fascinating. When you're talking about the study with the babies, that is not what I expected you to say. <laughs> so whenever you said that, I was like, oh, okay. Um, okay, so let's back up and talk about that a little bit more because obviously we, a lot of moms want to breastfeed and, and we encourage it and we try to have moms breastfeed as long as they can and they're willing. But what about for the babies that can't be breastfed because either it's a maternal problem or a willingness issue or some medical reason? Is there a better alternative that you would recommend if they either can't be fully breastfed or can't be breastfed at all that might be more supportive of a beneficial colony of bacteria in their gut? Um, part of Part of the problem with formulas is they always all have a lot of iron. And iron is a, an obligatory, um, it, it is a food for bacteria. They feed your clostridium and uh, your, your bacteria that are the more aggressive bacteria in the baby's gut. So you're almost, um, uh, you know, breast milk is quote unquote iron poor. Um, it has a very low iron content, but the bioavailability, meaning the ability of the baby to absorb the iron, is extremely high. Uh, iron in formula is absorbed maybe about 15-20% of it at most. Um, iron in breast milk, you're looking more at 75-80%. And iron is ushered into the baby's body through lactoferrin, which is a protein that literally traps the iron, binds it, and takes it into the baby's body. So the result of a, in breastfeeding is you have very little iron goes to the colon, hardly none. And therefore you starve the bacteria that are harmful to the baby. And that's one of the mechanisms by which the, the, this breast milk protects the baby. And there's many others such as the high lactose content with the baby being slightly lactose intolerant, a little bit of lactose goes to the colon, gets fermented, by the lactobacillus that are in the colon and that fermentation decreases the pH or makes the stool more acid, which is also a bad environment for the bad bacteria. Mm -hmm. So these, these things are protect, you know, very protective for the baby in addition to all of the immune factors that the mother transmits to the baby, which I'll never be able to put in a can. Um, now, I, I, I wanna say, you know, whatever you do, avoid cow's milk protein to the baby. I mean, it makes kittens sick, makes babies sick. Um, there, there, is a, uh, there seems to be an association between babies who are exposed to cosmic protein and type 1 diabetes. A lot of people don't know that. And I cannot imagine that the milk protein in a formula is any different than milk protein in a jug of milk. 
And I, I, I really feel that we're doing babies a disadvantage to exposing them to cow's milk. So then we're off to things like soy formula and things like that. Something has changed in the soy formulas over the years because nowadays almost every one of my parents are telling me that their babies become severely constipated. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't, I don't know why because I've used soy formulas for years and it's only in the last four or five years that we've had this like, I mean, a baby who used to get constipated on cow's milk based formula and now they're getting severely constipated on soy and it's just very strange. But what you can get around with the with the with the formulas though is you still put all this iron in it, and they've eliminated all the low iron formulas. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you you can't get around it. So you know, say stay away from cow's milk the best you can, and get them on solid food, food as quickly as they're developmentally ready to do so, and and off the formula as quickly as possible. Wow. Okay, that's great information. So you started talking about inflammatory bowel disease. Can you talk more about what, what inflammatory bowel disease is and then go back to what things we can do to decrease our risk? You talked about the things that increase our risk, but mm -hmm. what things can we do to decrease our risk? And if somebody is diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, can we use diet to potentially reverse that? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. So it's a topic that is so dear to my heart. So, um, so the first thing is inflammatory bowel disease. So a lot of people will know them by the name of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. But also remember celiac disease is also an inflammatory bowel disease. <laughs> it's also an autoimmune disorder. But most of the time when we talk about IBD, not IBS, inflammatory irritable bowel syndrome is is different, no damage to the bowel, okay? Uh, in this particular case, we're talking about IBD, which is inflammatory bowel disease, and most people are gonna have Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So what happens? Well, the way I explain it to my patients is that usually there would be an event, an event such as maybe an infection or something that revs up the immune system. Imagine you get a splinter in your finger, and your body sees an, an intruder and is going to react to that intruder by doing a number of things. It's gonna call the troops, and uh, in calling the troops, it does that through chemicals that the white blood cells are producing, which is gonna cause vasodilation, meaning you're opening up the blood vessels so the finger gets swollen, so does the gut. There's gonna be some pain, you're gonna be aware that there's something going on there. And then um, other white cells are going to be coming in. They're going to start fighting the battle to try to get the splinter out. And in the process, they're going to lose the battle, and some of them are dying, so that's pus. And the chemicals the white blood cells produce in order to fight the battle are damaging to your own tissue as well. So you'll see redness, damage, and a lot of time you'll get a sore or a zit or something that's the expression of that battle. Same thing happens in a geotrack. Then the splinter pops out, the offending agent, whatever started this whole battle goes away, and your immune system very smartly realizes that and knows it's done, the job is finished. So now the cleaner uppers come by, they clean up everything, and you have cells and in, 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 in chemicals that are put out to heal the sore, the redness goes away, the blood vessels go back to normal, and everything goes back to normal. Maybe at the end you'll have a little dot of a scar where you you had the you had the problem. 
an autoimmune disorder would be a situation where even though the offending agent is gone, the battle continues. So imagine the splinter pops out of your finger and now your immune system is continuously attacking and attacking and attacking. And before you know it, you have a big sore in your finger, it's bleeding, you know, you've had, your finger falls off or whatever, you know. And that's what happens in, we think, in a simplified way, you know, the immune disorders where something triggered the battle. And because of your genetic predisposition, you might have continued to have this ramped up immune system that doesn't have a reason to be ramped up anymore because the offender is gone, but now it's damaging your own body. And so we'll see different things. And it used to be we, we thought Crohn's and colitis were two different diseases, and now we realize they're more of a continuum. When I explain this to patients, I tell them it's even more continuum than that because a lot of my patients also have joint pain and skin problems and eye problems and liver problems, et cetera. It's a whole body thing. And you just call the disease or whatever the condition is by the name of the organ that's most affected. So I'll have a lot of kids who first go see a rheumatologist because their joints hurt, but then they turn out to have Crohn's. And then I have Crohn's patients who have real bad joint pain or end up having, you know, progression of their joint problem consistent with rheumatoid arthritis. So what ends up happening is your genetics kind of gives you that ability to maybe react a certain way, but then something happened and then now you have the situation that's just out of hand and it's going to continue. Crohn's disease can be anywhere from the mouth to the anus. And the type of ulcers that you see in Crohn's are peculiar and we rely on tissue samples or biopsies. And on the appearance of these, uh, as we scope patients, as we look with a, with, a, with a scope inside of their GI tract, to be able to determine what it is that they have. Um, by no means should anybody, everybody should understand that the diagnosis is not a clean cut, you know? If, if you go to your doctor and you have a sore throat and you do a strep test and you have a positive strep, it's strep period. With Crohn's, I, I often sit down with my patients as we go over the results of the test and we have a list of things and I say, this is consistent with Crohn's. This does not support it. This is consistent. If you have enough consistent in the column of consistent, then we could say we have Crohn's. But a lot of times there's a lot of gray zones, so that's important. Um, Crohn's is, an, is, is a is a disease that I absolutely detest. I hate it with a purple passion because you can have a number of things. So the GI tract gets irritated, inflamed, you can bleed, but Crohn's can make ulcers so deep that now you get some little communication, you, get a, you spring a leak in your gut. That's called a fistula. And now some people have a type of Crohn's that does that a lot. And that will then go leak into your bladder and your vagina, to your skin, um, into, you know, from gut to gut and things like that. It's extremely difficult to treat. It's very, very, it can be, you know, incapacitating for some people. Other types of Crohn's have a tendency in the process of building and trying to heal and inflamed and trying to heal will cause strictures. So these people, even though their Crohn's is under control, will have narrowing of their gut in certain spots and sometimes require surgery. Tell my patients, I say, my job is until you turn 18 and you're no longer my patient, I'm going to keep you away from the knife the best I can because once you get started on 
surgeries, it's very, very, um, it can be debilitating. Um, ulcerative colitis, it was taught to be uh, kind of a cousin of Crohn's, but limited strictly to the colon. It has different features when you look with the scope. It also has different features when you look under the, under the microscope. Uh, but typically, it's just a colon, and people used to say, oh, you have ulcerative colitis, you're, you're luckier than the Crohn's patients, because if you have ulcerative colitis and you can't control it, we'll just take your colon out. No problem. <laughs> it's like, as you can tell, it's a little bit more complicated than that, and there's definitely some issues about losing your colon, um, including fertility issues in women and, and, and uh, sexual function in men, and as well as um, just simply living without a colon is not a piece of cake. And we found out the hard way in the early days that sometimes we thought somebody had colitis. We took their colon out because we had very little resources to treat them. And then a few years later, they had disease in their small bowel and they mm. developed Crohn's. So not a good, not a good place to be. So, so that's kind of pretty much the definition of the two. Um, first part of your question. Um, the second part of your question, diet. Well, um, back in the 80s, when I was a fellow, and there were some studies done in Canada and in Europe. Um, actually, the concept of changing the diet in Crohn's goes way back to the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, you know, in, those, in the early days, they didn't even have prednisone. So if you wanted to give somebody steroids, you had to put them in a hospital and stimulate their ACTH which is the hormone that tells the body to make steroids. And then it was like a big deal. And then you had to be in the hospital for so many days, trying to stimulate the ACTH through various measures. And it was temporary. And then you'd go home and hope for the best and come back. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Eventually, somebody would end up having to have surgery. And what they observed was that some people who were fasting, waiting for their surgery because they were too sick to eat, got better. And was like, hmm, interesting. And some people got so much better that they just they ended up leaving and they didn't need the surgery. So that was interesting. So these were the very early days of diet change and surgery. And then um, some of the very early what we call elemental formulas, meaning formulas that are con conceived by taking proteins and breaking them down to the very basic. So proteins are made of building blocks. And the building blocks are called amino acids. And you can have formulas that are made of just amino acid broth. So none of, we can't be allergic to them because we all have the same amino acids. And there are no amino acids put together, so the body would not recognize it as a separate protein. And so there were some very early formulas that were extremely low fat, by the way, only 2%. They were giving you just essential fatty acids all carbohydrate, and a completely dismantled protein. 
and so some people, as they were waiting for surgery, said, we have to nourish these people, let's try. So this tube fed these formulas, and lo and behold, they got better too. And so there, it became very important and relevant in children because, as you know, steroids in children affects their growth. And Crohn's in children affects their growth as well. So now we're trading one evil for another. And so people were looking for ways to spare steroids in children. So back, back in the 80s, there were studies that looked at induction of remission of children who had Crohn's, comparing the use of formula uh, and putting the child basically in a, in a state where all they got was a formula versus steroids in terms of remission rate. And they found identical remission rates. So about 75% of people will go into clinical remission, meaning they feel better and their symptoms have gone away by using formula instead of steroids. And that was a huge revelation, which has changed in many ways the way people practiced in Canada and Europe, but unfortunately not so much in the United States. Mm. Uh, it didn't take hold in the United States. And, um, and then with the advent of some new, newer medications, people just, in this country, it's hard to get, to get people to understand that it's really best not to take the pill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and most people prefer to take a medication and go you know, business as, as usual. So some of the studies where they would do uh, tube feeds for a while would then allow the kids to start eating their favorite foods in increasing amounts. And of course, it was always pizza and burgers. And guess what? The remission didn't hold. <laughs> mm. So um, that was in that was in the um, in the eighties, roughly eighties and early nineties. And um, the power of this is is so much so that the Germans, the European Pediatric Gastroenterology Association, in their uh, standard of care for pediatric inflammatory bowel disease, and that when I reviewed this, this was a few years ago, has this as a first-line treatment. Um, they really have given up using the steroids because the other thing we found is that there seems to be a, a possibility that if you use steroids, you may never really get to full remission. Mm. You may put yourself in a position where you your chances of full remission are going to decrease. Mm -hmm. um, remission... Um, and it's always hard for parents to hear because the first thing is they can we fix this doc and you know so we're talking like in terms of cancer it can be in remission but yeah ha people have to understand there's three types there's three components to the remission the first is what we call clinical remission and clinical remission is when you feel better so you had diarrhea, the diarrhea goes away, blood in the stool, blood in the stool goes away, you were throwing up, you were losing weight, all that goes away, and now you're feeling better. So that's clinical remission. The second thing is that if I were, some people could feel better like in two weeks, and they're all better. But if I looked in their GI tract again, I rescope them, still sick. So the second wave of remission is endoscopic remission. And there's a delay between clinical and endoscopic remission of several weeks to months to where endoscopic remission would be when I look in the colon of these people or the bowels of these people, the, the, the features that I saw in the diagnosis are gone. So visually I can't see. And then the third and most important remission that you want is microscopic remission, which basically now I take samples of the bowel, I look under the microscope, 
and it's all be all better. Okay. So there's been since then several studies that have looked at uh, different different formulas. Interestingly enough, of course, Nestle had to come up with a formula that was more palatable. And guess what? There's dairy in it. Mm. <laughs> Which, but even but despite that, um, the the changes apparently whatever it's doing to the gut, despite the fact that it has dairy in it, has still uh, brought um, some really good results. And and when people are comparing, um, you know, uh, medications to formula, the formula still has a good hold, you know, and has, still has a good potential. There's been some studies also, um, if, and there may have been some newer ones that I have not yet seen, but compelling studies, one in Japan and one in the Middle East, where they, the Japan, they went back to a traditional Japanese diet, uh, mostly rice, lots of veggies, lots of seaweed. They did use a tiny bit of yogurt for probiotic purposes, and they would allow their patients to eat a little bit of fish and they found some good results. And also there were some other, although small studies in the Middle East where they compared medications and formula, et cetera, et cetera. And what they found is actually that people who ate the food did better than ones on the formula and better than the ones on medication. So that was very encouraging as well. And, um, and there were some side data that had not you know, been fully released, but if somebody's already on medication, for example, if you start on what we call a biological, you know, a, a medication you have to have by infusion, um, there's about a 20% drop off each year. So you start with 100% of patients. And after one year, you have 20% of people will have a relapse. The second year, another 20, et cetera. So by five years, almost every 90% of people will have had some sort of bump in the road that will require an escalation of therapy. And the data that came out of those studies showed that at five years, patients on Remicade were um, still, 98% of them were still in control with less medicine, uh, which has been my experience as well when I, when I work with, with families. And then you're saying these are the people that change their diet. Correct. So, um, you know, in my perfect world, I so much would love if uh, I, if my patients could adhere completely, and I have had a couple over the years, and 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 the ones that have had adhered to a strict whole food plant based diet, I have a couple of people who have their Crohn's is resolved, and they are on no medication. Wow! Uh, and it, it's just amazing. Um, what I what I, what I now when I have a new, newly diagnosed patient, I present all this data to them. I have a PowerPoint that's simplified, you know, for, for, for patients to be able to understand. And I make it abundantly clear that it is not okay to go out and eat pizza and burgers. It's not okay to not eat your vegetables. Um, but then, you know, you have all the challenges of trying to get a teenager to change <laughs> their uh, eating habits. And the other thing um, that, with all due respect to all the groups and you know all my heroes, uh, the Esselstons and Barnards and and all all these guys, you know, that are just our pillars. Um, the impact of eating differently from the pack, at least in my communities here, 
is extremely difficult for families to navigate. Mm. The, they are um, almost um, isolated, ostracized, and um, picked on and discriminated against. Wow. And, uh, a friend of mine who's a sociologist has pulled out some studies on food sociology and found that if you don't, if you differently from the pack, the level of discrimination can be similar to that of racial discrimination. Um, it's not uncommon that I've, I've had kids who are bullied. Um, it's a real problem. Wow. And, 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 and usually what I, I tell them, they try to explain what's going on with them. And I said, don't explain, just say you're allergic. I'm allergic. My doctor said I can't eat because people can relate to allergies, but they can't relate to I'm going to eat properly to be well. Yeah. And then you have the sports events and you're on the road and they all, all they stop at is fast food places. And, you know, so, and then you have to go to camp and how do you navigate going to camp? And it's a, it's a real challenge and it's, it's an underspoken challenge. And I think if you're in a community where there's already a fairly good momentum, it's easier. You know, my husband teaches uh, high school and there's more and more kids who are vegan, vegetarian. So it's not, that odd anymore and actually it's become trendy not that they're doing necessarily eating healthy vegan food but i mean it's it's a start but the communities that i serve um are about 50 percent of my population is medicaid and uh, they living on the poverty level yeah so then the next question is doc what do i eat and my my friend made a good point when she gave this sociology talk she said you know we say yet yeah, no we as affluent people say yes to our kids. You need a pair of shoes? Yeah, I'll give you one. You need a new book bag? Here it is. You need, you know, something? I'll give it to you. You know, so it's easier to say no to food. But when you have a family where they don't have the money for any of that, and they have to say no, 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 no to their kids, and a kid wants a dollar burger, how it's so hard for a parent to not show love by giving them something that they want, you see? And that's, a, that's such a real problem. And, you know, and I, I teach cooking in a GI clinic. I'm a subspecialist and I spend an hour telling people how they can cook, but, you know, it, there's, there's still, you know, it's, it's difficult for people to see that eating potatoes and frozen vegetables can be as nutritious as meat. Yes. Wow, what a complicated, complex issue with so many layers <laughs> that we could dig into for sure. And, and I think it's important for a lot of us also to understand that, that for some communities especially, this change is, is not easy. And even when you're talking about being apart from your pack, I mean, that's a big deal, you know, whenever your social world is, is important. It's very important to all humans, but if you're getting rejected from that, mm -hmm. then it's, it's going to be very disincentivizing to make those changes. But what I'm hearing from you is that in a perfect world, you would encourage your patients with inflammatory bowel disease to try a plant-based diet. Now I'm assuming that there's also cases where people they come in, they're so sick that they need to have medications to kind of calm things down. So how would you navigate that? Do you, mm -hmm. 
have them like put them on one of these elemental formulas to begin with until things calm down, try medication, then transition to a plant-based diet? Or do you kind of do that based upon their severity? How do you navigate that? Well, we've done it all. <laughs> I even taught kids how to put their own tubes in their nose so they can do the feeds at home. And they do, wow. it, they do it well. I mean, actually, it's amazing that they can, you know, somebody could learn to stick a tube down their nose and, uh, and so on. But it's not really the, it's mostly rejected, <laughs> that option is. Um, okay, so if I have a newly diagnosed patient with inflammatory bowel disease, the first thing that we do is we have a meeting at the clinic. And the meeting has to have, the patient, because most of my kids are going to be teen teenagers or old enough to understand a simplified version of, of, of what's going on. And they need to know what's going on with them. And they need to be a part of the decision making because, you know, they're not going to be with mom and dad all the time and you can't control everything a 13 year old is going to do. So they have, they have to be part of the, the decision of what we're going to do about this. Uh, a big part is to understand what is happening and why is it happening? Where does this come from? So like we explained a little bit earlier, I show them the population studies and, and tell them about the differences in diet between those populations and so on. So that sets the stage. And then we talk about the different medication. Now, the, the one thing that we can always count on is no parent ever want to see their kids taking medication. Mm -hmm. And they don't want to see them taking medicines forever. Mm -hmm. And then the second aspect of things, particularly for insured patients, is the cost. It's daunting. And what's going to happen to my child when they are not on my insurance? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of things to think about. Mm. So I go over the medications, what they do, what people typically do or have typically done, and what are the side effects. And of course, if, if I talk about steroids, my, my whole goal about this is to try to avoid steroids because I, I really don't think in the long run even though they're still widely used in this country, that they are particularly beneficial. And so we got this long, long, long list of side effects. And I've had some patients in the past who wouldn't tell me they were relapsing because they were so scared that I'd put them back on steroids because it was, again, damaging to their self-esteem being, you know, having their face change and having terrible acne and having to go to school like that. It was horrible. So we go over that. And I go over the data that I have on diet changes. We talk about two fees, and we talk also that there are some very promising things uh, with plant-based. And then we come to an agreement as to what are we going to do. And I, I'm pretty pushy about we're not going to do dairy anymore. You know, I said, if you really want to do dairy, there are plenty of doctors that are okay with that. Maybe you need to pick a different one because I just cannot bring myself to tell you that it's okay to take dairy. I mean, it's one of the, in my opinion, the big risk factors. And most patients with Crohn will tell you, it's not just lactose intolerance. They are sick when they eat dairy. So they've already figured it out. Um, and so I, I look at it as a continuum. You know, my perfect world, I'm going to get everybody on plant-based. But in, in, in what, what can we negotiate? What can we do? I mean, I, and I've had all sorts of adventures. I, I've had some kids that they would not eat a vegetable. I mean, there is nothing you can do. We put them in the hospital. I put them on IV feeding so I can fast them from a GI tract standpoint. And sometimes by fasting them for a few days while I'm giving them nutrition in either way, we, you know, they're pretty happy to eat again and they'll eat whatever I give them. But that little, this one particular um, child, uh, you know, there, there, there is a few that just will not go there. And, and I don't know what the deal is, but 
Um, so we try to see how can we eliminate the offensive food. So let's get rid of the milk and the cheese. Let's get rid of the hot dogs and the highly processed foods and the high fat stuff. And then if we're going to do something, you know, buy the more expensive meat, organic and stuff, so you'll eat less of it. <laughs> and then let's build up to have more vegetables and starches, you know, and less processed things on the plate. And it, as far as we can go in the direction of plant-based, that's where we're going to be. Now, I'm not an anti-medication doctor. I am, you know, medications have place. But what I do trust to my families is that the more you make changes in your eating habits, then the more you will, um, you know, the, the less medications you will use. Mm-hmm. And the less medicine means the less side effects. Mm-hmm. And they all know people who've been into, into that very terrible, vicious cycle. More medicines, more side effects, more medicines for the side effects, and then it just goes on forever. So, um, so we just do the best we can with that. And, you know, overall, my kids are doing quite well. And um, they're always very happy, particularly when they get off the dairy and their joints quit hurting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they do feel, you know, better. And it doesn't take long, very days. So the, the, the first place where I start is usually when I scope them. I scope them, I see this horrible looking gut. And they're not sick enough to be in the hospital. So the first thing parents want to do, what can we do right now to help them feel better? I said, I'll just, I just got the right thing for you. Uh, well, and then I know all my ducks in a row, I'm not going to start anybody on medication until I know everything about this condition. And I'm certain that it's not an infection or whatever. I say, here's what you're going to do between now and next week when I, when I call you in the office and we talk about the results. You're going to eat potatoes, sweet potatoes, rice, no beans because they won't tolerate it. Cooked vegetables, a little bit of applesauce, maybe some cooked fruits, a few berries if you tolerate them, and drink water. That's it. Just that for a week? Yeah, just that for a week. I mean, but we got to survive that week, so this is going to make, make them feel better. And so the nice thing about that is sometimes if they do it, by the time they come back the following, they're better. Mm. So I've you know, I've had people that were so much better that they wanted to work a little bit longer in that direction and they didn't want to start medicine. Right? Wow. So, and then, so, well, okay, you're, you're, you're so much better. Well, you know, this qualifies as clinical remission. We're heading in the right direction. I'm comfortable monitoring you and making sure that we continue in that route. If that is your choice after seeing all that, all the data. That's great. And, you know, and then, and then, and then some of them, they're like, oh, well, you know, we can't wait to eat a steak again. And mm-hmm. it's like, you know, but at least uh, they, they have experienced a little bit uh, how changing their diet can make a difference quickly. And it's, it's, it's a seed that's planted, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I'm working with the teenagers, sometimes it takes a while for them to come to the conclusion that this is what they want to do. And because you've got so many interaction with parents, parents want to do it, we, we will do it. And the kids are like, heck, no, I'm not. Just because mom and dad said they're going to do it. <laughs> so there's, there's all that interaction on top of I'm not feeling good, I'm sick, and the parents are scared, and every, everything is really, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a very um, intricate ballet, <laughs> I should say. Yeah, and I love how you mentioned how quickly these effects can occur, how mm-hmm. quickly somebody can feel better. Because I feel like that's what I hear over and over again from different experts from a variety of different conditions is that once you change the diet, 
the improvements can be rather rapid <laughs> within mm -hmm. days for some things. And that really just to me, every time just magnifies the power yeah. of what we're putting in our bodies, what foods Absolutely. we're putting in our bodies. And I mean, I'm just like, whoa, you know, like for those of us who value that and who are willing to change our diet and lifestyle to get those improvements, you're just like, it's a no brainer. But as you said, it's complicated and it's complex. And sometimes we're dealing with teenagers and that's a whole different social matter with teenagers. That's okay. very complicated there. Talk to me about probiotics and prebiotics. And is this something that you use in your patients with inflammatory bowel disease? And does it have a role for people that have no GI problems and healthy guts? Okay. So um, the, the probiotics, and just for your listeners, um, and to be clear as to what we're talking about, probiotics are basically seeding in some new some bacterias that are felt to be good bacterias um and then the prebiotics is you give fertilizer to the bacterias okay so a whole food plant-based diet is a prebiotic diet it's i mean it's the ultimate good stuff okay so um if you would have asked me this question two weeks ago i would have said oh yeah i use probiotics in my patients. And actually, if you, again, if you go back to some of the position papers in, in, uh, in pediatric uh, standard of care for inflammatory bowel disease, the Europeans do recommend that um, some of the certain types of probiotics are beneficial uh, and can help decrease the use of medications. But then there's some other data that came out that I was listening to on another podcast that seems to, uh, and, and this um, physician, this gastroenterologist was talking about uh, some latest um, presentations at the microbiome meeting. Um, the, the, a healthy microbiome tr thrives on diversity. And um, meaning, just like your financial portfolio, you don't want to put all your eggs in the same basket. You want to have a, a, a broad variety of things in your portfolio. And the same as in your microbiome portfolio, you wanna have a broad variety. And so the, the data seems to be emerging now that a healthy microbiome means that you have a broad variety of bugs in your gut. And you want a broad variety of the favorable ones. And there seems to be some data that's come out where if you give probiotics, you are enhancing the populations of those bugs and reducing your, your uh, array of bacterias and favoring a population of one or two. Mm. And that may not necessarily be the best uh, approach. And they were even quoting a study that I have not had time to verify, but um, where people had wiped the gut out with antibiotics and watch what happened to the gut bacteria as they came back uh, after being wiped out with antibiotics with and without probiotics. And the ones who received probiotics seem to have a much lesser diversity. Mm. Um, remember when you have diarrhea or you wipe your gut bacteria out, you still have a considerable amount of bacteria that are sitting in the mucus and just really lined there and then the appendix seems to be playing an important role as a reservoir for when something happens to your microbiome and then 
the, the, the bugs are hiding in there and then they'll pop right out and uh, kind of reseed your, your colon that way. And so, so I'm, I'm not sure that I'm necessarily, you know, so big on probiotics anymore. Uh, I'm going to have to research it and be certain that the, the data holds. But then again, uh, I always tell my patients that, um, you know, um, again, if you want to take a pill or do you want to do the right thing? Because, you know, after talking with Dr. T. Colin Campbell, one thing that I really have appreciated about his knowledge is we are so unknowledgeable. And, you know, so what is a healthy microbiome? I mean, a lot of microbiome studies were done on standard, standard American diet, male, white, you know, white males. Well, what is that? You know, so we really don't know. And so, um, but based on Dr. Campbell's assessment and extensive research, what he says is basically you give, you give the body the right food, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about counting this and that. So my, my message to my patients is, you know, if you want to go and spend, and, and then the, and then we also have the layer of the, you know, the reliability of the product. It, 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 you know, it's on the shelf. I mean, are the bugs alive? Are they dead? You know, do you get what you pay for? Is there contamination? I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's no controlling of these substances. So I tell my patients the safest thing to do, prebiotic, vegetables, not pills, not powders, not anything like that. Just eat the food. <laughs> Just eat the food. Whole you know, plant enjoy. foods. Whole plant foods for the win. <laughs> well, speaking of whole plant foods and fiber, which as you had mentioned earlier, that's yeah. where we get our prebiotics. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about one of the most common reasons to visit a pediatrician or a pediatric gastroenterologist. Mm -hmm. Everybody's favorite topic constipation oh yeah <laughs> so My what? Is pop out constipation in the state of arkansas <laughs> <laughs> so so what what is your approach to constipation mm -hmm. what is mm -hmm. what is it that you're talking to families about whenever you get your typical kid usually toddler preschooler it's been constipated quote forever you know according to parents how do we solve this problem well, can we do another podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I have let some time. <laughs> let me, I'll, I'll give you a few teasers, okay? Um, so the, uh, it depends on the age of the child and the circumstances. So, you know, there's a big difference between toddler constipation and, and say an older child who's been constipated to the point now being what we call anchoretic, meaning overflowing stools and having incontinence. Um, let's take the toddler. Um, the typical scenario that we have is toddler transitions, um, changes their diet, they turn a year old, they're introduced to nuggets and milk, and the next thing you know, they have a hard stool. And then the stool was painful. Uh, the toddler who's smart says, not doing that again. And the next thing you know, they have the little dance where they are holding their legs tight and they don't want to go and they are just a miserable little souls and or some of them will grunt some of them will dance around one time somebody sent me it was still in the vhs days and somebody sent a vhs cassette of their child and they thought they had a seizure except it was standing up and they weren't falling down and and the kid was uh, leaning against a coffee table and going into this major shaking spell 
And it was hysterical because I'm looking at this and my husband walks by and he goes, oh, that gets constipated. <laughs> I was like, thanks, honey. I mean, you figured it out when you, I had about five doctors look at this and they were, they were telling me they were clueless. But anyway, so the bottom line is um, the problem with the toddler is the constipation will be driven by two things. It started with the diet, which has given the, the bowel the opportunity to produce a large painful bowel movement, but it's going to be continued by a toddler who now has made the association between the urge of going to the bathroom, the, the warning sign when stool comes into the rectum, and pain. And that, and I always compliment parents, I say you got a real smart kid, you know, dumb kids don't care, um, but your smart little toddler has figured it out, that when they feel that warning sign, they think they're gonna hurt. And just like they run the opposite direction if they come to your office to get immunizations, they're gonna do whatever they can not to go. So they hold it, the urge goes away, they consider themselves successful, now they have a bigger stool in their rectum. Eventually, after a few events of that nature, they're gonna pass another boulder, they're gonna be in more pain, they're gonna be more determined, et cetera. So a big, most people underestimate the power of persistence of a toddler. And they will give parents a little bit of medications, um, soften their stools after a week, say, okay, you can get off. And the kid's still scared. So they go back and forth and back and forth. So a common visit for me would be a toddler has been dealing with this for anywhere from a month to a year to two years. And they're still freaking out about going to the bathroom. So I, I, I tell parents, you know, in a toddler situation like this, there's no other way but, but to use some sort of medication. Um, if they're very little, I love milk and magnesia. Uh, and if they're older, I'll use Miralax. We don't use stimulants. And fiber gummies are a complete waste of time and money. Um, well, part of it, I compare the fiber gummies. I, I like to talk about this because the fiber gummies, I compare them. Uh, most, most parents have had experience with those little craft sponges. Uh, they're flattened and compressed. And then you can cut shapes out of them and, and then cut them out. And the kids can put them in water and they make little animals and things like that. And I tell parents, you know, you have that sponge that starts off and it's maybe a quarter of an inch thick. And when it rehydrates, it's now two inches thick. And when it dries up again, it doesn't go back to a quarter of an inch. And that's what happens to the fiber in your gut when you consume it in a dry form. Mm. Um, it poofs up and the kid never drinks enough with the, the, the fiber pill or whatever and poofs up and then when, because a child is withholding them, the, the longer the stool sits in the colon, the more water is being reabsorbed and therefore the harder and the bigger the stool is. So uh, fiber supplements and the dose forms are gonna potentially create a bigger problem in the toddler who's retaining, mm -hmm. uh, should be avoided. Um, so, um, and that's not even touching on the fact that there's a big difference in eating so many grams of fiber in a gummy versus from an apple. Mm -hmm. And your listeners probably already know that. So anyway, so the toddler, we have to approach the toddler with um, a fairly large amount of medication because frequently, uh, and I explain it to the parents, I say, I have to convince this toddler to go to the bathroom with only one means, which is whatever medicine I'm choosing, Whereas I could talk to you and say, you know, I'm going to give you this, it's going to be better, and you'll believe me, but the toddler won't. So 
people are amazed at the amount of medication a toddler may require to finally go. And then once we we get that going, we we're, I, I want the parents to keep keep at it until we discuss ways to tell that that child's no longer scared. So most of the time you'll give them a really large amount of medicine for them to go once a day, big blowout, but then eventually that child will relax and go three or four times a day. That's when you know they're not scared anymore. You can start backing off. The second thing we have to take into consideration is how long has the problem gone on. If the problem has gone on long enough to stretch their rectum to where they don't know that they have to go to the bathroom for two or three days, you, weaning them is not going to help because they'll have another bad experience. Um, and then we have to address the diet. So I tell them we're going to clear the poop, we're going to retrain the bowels and make sure the toddler is no longer scared, but then we also have to take a step to make sure that this never happens again. And they're all on board with. So then we talk about eating the fruits and vegetables and getting rid of the milk. And in in my clinic, I'm, uh, it's an all or nothing. I, I do not, you know, I do not um, recommend cutting back. Cutting back doesn't work because of casomorphines. And casomorphines, those narcotic-like substances that are breaking off from the casein, work on the gut as well. And I've seen kids who were on Miralax for years, off Miralax, once they got off milk, within a matter of days, would go to their grandparents, get one glass of milk and constipate it for three days. Mm. You know, so it wasn't the quantity of milk. It wasn't the food in its, itself that did it. It was probably the case of morphins. So that's for the toddler. And then um, for the older kids, basically similar thing, clean out, magic dose, you know, to kind of keep us going. And then depending on how much veggies and things they can eat, and then also potty sits and things like that to kind of retrain the bowels and not have accidents. Um, but always, you know, now what are we going to do about not make, making sure this doesn't happen again? Now, you know, and I'm sure I mean, it's a federal law for kids to get milk in school and mm -hmm. cheese and all that kind of stuff. So I'm always happy to write a prescription uh, for their school that they can't have it anymore. Uh, it, it really does. It's difficult. I, I don't know, uh, you know, where you live and your, your listeners, but in Arkansas, the school lunches could use a little revamping because once you take away the cheese, there's nothing for the kid to eat. Because <laughs> it's, it's in everything. And, you know, but anyway, well, we make do and, uh, you know, so that's... What about uh, utilizing the higher fiber foods like beans or bran, things like that? Do you utilize get so, prescriptions yeah, I, for specific foods? I totally recommend beans. You know, that's part of it. Bran, uh, it's a processed food. No, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, sometimes they'll pick a breakfast cereal, you know, that has a little bit higher fiber. But again, you have to be real careful with that because like if you do like raisin bran or you know, shredded wheat or something like that. Again, you're starting with a very dry product. And if they don't drink enough uh, to go with the fiber, you, you can also have some issues with that. Mm -hmm. My whole jest is really, um, it's, it's a lot more to treating constipation than increasing fiber. So a lot of people think of fiber. So they'll, they'll, they'll list a number of fiber-rich products that are highly processed, certain tortillas that have, you know, extra fiber in them and everything. But my point to them is, you know, we're feeding this microbiome and it's more than just 
the number of grams of fiber that we're talking about. So I, I always I like to, to quote, um, you know, the studies that were done on apple, you know, you take an apple, you take, break it down in its components, you give each component as a pill, and you have a certain effect. And then if you take, eat the apple, you have a completely enhanced effect. So you get more bang for your money by eating the food. Mm-hmm. And so I really make it a point to explain to my patients that, you know, we got to get the child pooping, but what's, what's going to really give you good gut health is going to be eating the food that's going to train that microbiome to behave properly, which will then settle everything. And, and then, you know, you can have a, I call it praise the Lord bowel movement and, you know, mm-hmm. and everybody's happy. Um, and the other point too, that I don't want to, you know, I mean, I really feel strongly not not to promote um, artificial forms of fibers because I want them to eat the food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I encourage the whole family to do it with them. Uh, you know, and then we get to talking about you know grandma's diabetes and yeah. dad's blood pressure and everything, and warning them that if we're changing the diet, you better watch what's going on with these guys because they're going to get better too. <laughs> yeah. So basically, eliminate dairy hundred percent completely. Yeah. Eat your whole, fl- whole whole plant foods, your fruits, vegetables, whole grains, your beans. Mm-hmm. And for the toddlers, we're going to have to use milk and magnesia or Miralax for a little bit until yeah. they can forget that process that they learned, that conditioning that they have, that it's going to hurt to poop. Yeah. And for the older kids, we might have to do some bowel retraining, potty sitting. And you may have to use uh, some medication on the older kids too, depending on the circumstances. But, you know, I've had some kids, uh, I, I had patient walk in the door who'd been on stimulants actually and he didn't want to take Miralax he said you know so he walks in the door and he said okay you know I'm constipated I'm here because my mother wants me to be here I I, I, I won't take Miralax so don't even tell me about it okay I said do I have a deal for you um and so we struck a deal and he said well as long as it's not Miralax I'll do it I said that sounds great we're going to do a green smoothie every day so we packed the kale and, uh, and fruits and stuff in a, in a big old smoothie. And his job was to drink it instead of the Miralax. And he did that in potty sits and he solved his constipation. We were off the stimulants within a month. So, you know, so green, uh, so I do green smoothies. Um, that's kind of a good introduction. If most, you know, going back to Dr. Lyle's uh, pleasure trap, I like to explain to patients why the kids don't eat vegetables and how, why did vegetables come off first versus fruits versus uh, less processed, uh, you know, starchy foods, et cetera. And I said, you know, what went in one direction can go back in the other direction, but you got to detox your mouth and get back. So most kids will still uh, like fruits. And so, you know, pull out your green eggs and ham book, put a few leaves of kale in a heavily fruited smoothie and start that way. And then the other thing is to keep in mind too, is if the, if things are really cold, you don't taste them. That's why ice cream is so nauseatingly sweet if you were just to drink the liquid. So what I do is I have them make a smoothie and pour it in popsicle molds and eat popsicle, smoothie popsicles. Instead of buying popsicles at the store, they make their own. So, you know, that's another way. Oatmeal is a great, a great starting point of the day. Um, cook it in juice, um, you know, they can add fruits to it, little berries and things like that. That usually goes pretty well. Or you can 
take oatmeal and cook it in juice, but with less juice, so you have a, a more stiff oatmeal, and lay it out in the pan and put a little chocolate chips on it, orange chocolate chip oatmeal, uh, breakfast bars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty darn good, and, you know, most kids will eat it as well. So, you know, you, you just have to... So the, the key is a... So, most of the kids are eating some sort of meat three times a day. So I tell parents, well, you know, good news, you're going to save money on your groceries because they're eating meat at school and that's going to be too complicated to eliminate. So you're off to hope for dinner. You don't have to give them meat for dinner, you know? So just uh, make it in, into a you know platter of potatoes, vegetables, sweet potatoes, rice, beans, whatever you want to do. When we awesome. talk about things like that. What about using chia seeds or flax seeds? Oh yeah, you know we put some of those in the smoothie as well, and you know just remind, just a reminder. Unless you have a high power blender, you gotta you know mill the seeds first. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, a little flex is is a good thing. You know, awesome. if anything, to just boost up the omega threes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, but you know, uh, since I've been plant based and I, and I have been recommending it to my patients, I have had more kids off medications for their constipation than ever. I mean, awesome. you know, the majority of my patients eventually, I really don't have that many. I mean, I have a lot of fewer follow-ups now mm-hmm. because, you know, we get the job done, get them better and get them better. Off they go, you know, and, and I'm, I'm real happy about it. And same thing with my kids with reflux, you know, and, and, you know, the, it's a big motivator for the parents, you know, they give the pills because the doctor told them to do so. Mm-hmm. Their child is sick. They want to do something to help the child. And that's the only option they were given. Mm-hmm. So my first question, you know, after hearing a story is, I'm sure it worries you a lot to have to give your child medicine and to see no end in sight. And you're like, oh, yeah, doc, this is, this is definitely a reason we're here because we're scared, you know. And I said, what if I told you that we could do something and your child won't have to take medicine and we might prevent a bunch of other stuff? And you're like, okay, we're in. Yeah. So I, I can, I can always get something, you know, mm-hmm. you know, at least moving in the right direction. So definitely. Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful information. What do you wish more parents knew? Don't give your kids milk. <laughs> no I cow's milk. Cow's milk is for cows. Human milk is for babies and the two don't mix. I love it. That I'm not quite there yet. I can't, I, I encourage as many my families as possible, but we are in one of the biggest dairy places in the world over here too, with uh, all the dairy farms. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of people very attached. I feel like it's even a political thing, you know? Oh, yeah. So sometimes I can't be quite that strong, but thank you for being <laughs> strong for me. I appreciate it. So you wish more parents knew, don't give your kids cow milk ever. Thank you. What personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? Right. Um, I I guess two that are interlinked. Um, I'm proud of having made changes in my diet. Mm -hmm. And particularly because, um, you know, when people tell me it's hard, you know, I know hard because of, um, of the fact, and I'm happy that I found out about this, but it's, it's particularly difficult when you're doing clinic all day long, you don't have time to eat. I have to be very creative with what I have, you know, and eat while I work. Um, and to stick to it, I think that's good. And then, my, and then having exercised. Um, you know, I worked with a trainer. My longest stretch 
of consistent exercise was when I, I found my trainer, who, by the way, got converted to plant-based. Awesome. Was Congrats. Why I wasn't sore, and another client that was younger than me was so sore. I'm like, it's the food. And um, anyway, uh, I worked with him for three and a half years, uh, five days a week. And um, I got to a level of um, intensity that was amazing. Um, for those uh, of your listeners who are mature age, I'm 60, 61 going on 62. Um, um, the most, one of the most important thing my trainer helped me learn is my balance can be recovered. Okay. And as you age, you develop bad habits and you don't use your muscles as you should and everything and, and everything starts heading in the wrong, wrong direction, which is gravity. Okay. And, <laughs> But so, so I'm really proud of the fact that I, I did work out with him and he moved away, unfortunately. Uh, so I have to revamp that. But I am hooked on exercise and I know I'm going to get back to it. And um, I just, um, you know, but those two things, having consistently done, done those things, I think, you know, I practice what I preach. I love it. That's beautiful. And congratulations with that. Thank you. How can listeners connect with you? I'm assuming that you see patients in your area. And I know that you also teach uh, the cooking classes and more nutrition things. So how can listeners find out more about you? So um, my pediatric chair practice uh, is here in Little Rock. And I also uh, work out of a satellite clinic in Northwest Arkansas. If you've heard of the Razorback football team, that's their home. Um, but that's uh, in a part of the state is about three hours away from here. And they can reach me, you know, just basically by calling my, my office. Um, phone number is area code 501-228-7171. And, um, and so that's my practice where I see basically um, the standard pediatric GI. Most of the time patients have to be either referred if their insurance requires, or they can do self-appointments if their insurance does not require referral. I do consultation in the clinic. I scope patients at the local children's hospital. And uh, so we, we do all that. Um, then then my, my, the, the other half of my life is uh, the healthy nugget. Uh, and uh, that's um, a service that I created because it's impossible to teach kids what to do if I don't teach the parents. So this is more of a nutrition coaching kind of business. We're in the midst of kind of revamping it a little bit. Um, but, you know, I've taught cooking classes and, you know, I'm available for guest lecturing and, um, you know, uh, and also for individual consultation for nutrition coaching. Um, and uh, that's pretty much it. And to reach, they can call my office for that as well, or they can email me at Healthy Nugget, L-R, so Healthy Nugget Little Rock, uh, at gmail.com. I don't have a website yet. Uh, <laughs> I'm not as savvy as all of you young, young, wonderful people to, you know, get all this social stuff and, and everything, but I do need to, to do that. <laughs> well, that sounds fantastic. And I'm just 
so grateful that you do what you do. You're so knowledgeable. You're so compassionate. I can just tell you have so much love for your patients and you just have so much patience with them to have PowerPoints that you go over with your patients. That's amazing. So thank you so much for everything you do. Before I say goodbye, I would love for you to leave my listeners with a call to action for the week. What is one thing that they can do this week? One thing they can do this week is to make sure that every meal has a fruit and a vegetable. No fail. And then next week you do two and three and four (laughs) until the meat falls off the plate. (laughs) I love it. So there's no more room left (laughs) for any other animal products. Okay. But let's just start with one one, fruit or vegetable every meal. Think about it. The, the vast majority of my patients, when I, um, when I, when I do my diet history, uh, it's kind of funny because in, oh, my kids are really good eater of fruits and vegetables. And then, and I'll, you know, we talk this for a little longer and I say, honestly, how many times a week do you think you eat a vegetable? You know, and then the kid would go, eh, maybe three times. And, uh, and then a fruit, maybe a little bit more. The problem is the, um, the same way as now we're seeing people that have gotten used to obesity as the new normal. I have consultations of people whose kids are normal size that they think they're too skinny. Mm-hmm. Eating your vegetables good is like, you know, if, if your kid eats vegetables once or twice a week, that's considered good compared to those who do zero. Yes. So we have to be real careful about that when people... You know, I, I love the opening statement. My child has a real healthy diet, so it's not that the problem. And then when we start drilling in, and uh, and I use, uh, I love using some of the some of the websites where I can do calorie counts and show people the fat content of their diet, just some some basic macros, so that they can see what what uh, what is going on. The composition. And also, uh, one thing to keep in mind is I've also transitioned some of my tube fed patients, uh, special needs patients, to plant based um, mm-hmm. food feedings. And that I, I am so excited about the way that this is, ha- this is going because some of these kids, you know, the formulas that are given to these children uh, are so high in fat um, that I think uh, it it really throws them under the bus and Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, the well-being that we've had on these little guys, you know, just by putting vegetables in their tube was amazing. And I'm so excited about being able to help parents in that direction that have special need kids. These are my Wow. My sweethearts. <laughs> That's awesome. And definitely I'm going to have to have you back because I know that we could talk. We've gone almost two hours now. Oh my <laughs> I knew it was going to be a long episode because I knew that there's a lot of things you can oh, wow. tell us, but we'll have to come back and talk more about these things. But Dr. V, I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for all that you do. I am so happy that I have met you and I hope that you have a fantastic day. And thank you so much. And you too. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in and I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. 
Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.